Chapter 9 of What Katie Did Next. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by B.J. What Katie Did Next by Susan Coolidge. Chapter 9. A Roman Holiday. Oh, dear, said Mrs. Ashe, as she folded her letters and laid them aside. I wish those pages would go away from Nice, or else that the frigates were not there. Why, what's the matter? asked Katie, looking up from the many-leave journal from Clover, over which she was poring. Nothing is the matter, except those everlasting people haven't gone to Spain yet, as they said they would, and Ned seems to keep on seeing them, replied Mrs. Ashe petulantly. But, dear Polly, what difference does it make? And they never did promise you to go at any particular time, did they? No, they didn't, but I wish they would. All the same. Not that Ned is such a goose as to really care anything for that foolish Lily. Then she gave a little laugh at her own inconsistency, and added, But I oughtn't to abuse her when she is your cousin. Don't mention it, said Katie cheerfully. But really, I don't see why poor Lily need worry you so much, Polly dear. The room in which this conversation took place was on the very topmost floor of the Hotel del Hondo in Rome. It was large and many-windowed, and though there was a little bed in one corner half hidden behind the calico screen with a bureau and a washstand, and a sort of stout mahogany hat-tree on which Katie's dresses and jackets were hanging, the remaining space with a sofa and easy chairs grouped around a fire, and a round table furnished with books and a lamp was ample enough to make a good substitute for a private sitting-room, which Mrs. Ashe had not been able to procure on account of the near approach of the carnival, and the consequent crowding of strangers to Rome. In fact, she was assured that under these circumstances she was lucky to find rooms as good as these, and she made the most of the assurance as a consolation for the somewhat unsatisfactory food and service of the hotel, and the four long flights of stairs which must be passed every time they needed to reach the dining room or the street door. The party had been in Rome only four days, but already they had seen a host of interesting things. They had stood in the strange sunken space with its marble floor and broken columns, which is all that is left of the great Roman Forum. They had visited the Colosseum, at that period still overhung with ivy garlands and trailing greeneries, and not, as now, scraped clean and bare and tidied out of much of its picturesqueness. They had seen the baths of Caracola and the Temple of Janus and St. Peter's and the Vatican marbles, and had driven out on the Campania and to the Pamphila Doria Villa, to gather purple and red anemones, and to the English cemetery to see the grave of Keats. They had also peeped into certain shops and attended a reception at the American ministers. In short, like most unworn travelers, they had done about twice as much as prudence and experience would have permitted, had those worthies been consulted. All the romance of Katie's nature responded to the fascination of the ancient city, the capital of the world, as it may truly be called. The shortest drive or walk brought them face to face with innumerable and unexpected delights. Now it was a wonderful fountain, with plunging horses and colossal nymphs and tritons, holding cups and horns from which showers of white foam rose high in the air to fall like rushing grain into an immense marble basin. Now it was an arched doorway with traceries as fine as lace, sole remaining fragment of a heathen temple, flung and stranded, as it were, by the waves of time, on the squalid shore of the present. Now it was a shrine at the meeting of three streets, where a dim lamp burned beneath the effigy of the Madonna, with always a fresh rose beside it in a vase, 
its foot a peasant woman leaning in red bodice and blue petticoat with lace trimmed towel folded over her hair or again it would be a sunlit terrace lifted high on the hillside and crowded with carriages full of beautifully dressed people while below all rome seemed spread out like a panorama dim mighty majestic and bounded by the blue wavy line of the campagna and the alban hills or perhaps it might be a wonderful double flight of steps with massive balustrades and pillars with urns, on which sat a crowd of figures in strange costumes and attitudes, who all looked as though they had stepped out of pictures, but who were in reality models waiting for artists to come by and engage them. No matter what it was, a bit of oddly tinted masonry with a tuft of brown and orange wallflowers hanging upon it, or a vegetable stall where endive and chicory and curly lettuces were arranged in wreaths with tiny orange gourds and scarlet peppers for points of color. It was all Rome, and by virtue of that word, different from any other place, more suggestive, more interesting, ten times more mysterious than any other could possibly be, so Katie thought. This fact consoled her for everything and anything, for the fleas, the dirt, for the queer things they had to eat and still queerer odors they were forced to smell. Nothing seemed of any particular consequence except the deep sense of enjoyment and the newly discovered world of thought and sensation of which she had become suddenly conscious. The only drawback to her happiness as the days went on was that little Amy did not seem quite well or like herself. She had taken a cold on the journey from Naples, and though it did not seem serious, that or something— made her look pale and thin. Her mother said she was growing fast, but the explanation did not quite account for the wistful look in the child's eyes and the tired feeling of which she continually complained. Mrs. Ash, with vague uneasiness, began to talk of cutting short their Roman stay and getting Amy off to the more bracing air of Florence. But meanwhile there was the carnival close at hand, which they must by no means lose, and the feeling that their opportunity might be a brief one made her and Katie all the more anxious to make the most of their time. So they filled the days full with sights to see and things to do, and came and went, sometimes taking Amy with them, but more often leaving her at the hotel under the care of a kind German chambermaid, who spoke pretty good English, and to whom Amy had taken a fancy. The marble things are so cold, and the old broken things make me so sorry, she explained, and I hate beggars because they're dirty, and the stairs make my back ache and I'd a great deal rather stay with Maria and go up on the roof, if you don't mind, Mama. This roof, which Amy had chosen as a play place, covered the whole of the great hotel and had been turned into a kind of upper-air garden by the simple process of graveling it all over, placing trellises of ivy here and there, and setting tubs of oranges and oleanders and boxes of gay geraniums and stock gillyflowers on the balustrades. A tame fawn was tethered there. Amy adopted him as a playmate, and what with his company and that of the flowers, the times when her mother and Katie were absent from her passed not unhappily. Katie always repaired to the roof as soon as they came in from their long mornings and afternoons of sightseeing. Years afterward, she could remember, with contrition, how pathetically glad Amy was to see her. She would put her little head on Katie's breast and hold her tight for many minutes without saying a word. When she did speak, it was always about the house and garden that she talked. She never asked any questions as to where Katie had been or what she had done. It seemed to tire her to think about it. I should be very lonely sometimes if it were not for my dear little fawn, she told Katie once. 
He's so sweet, and I don't miss you and Mama very much while I have him to play with. I call him Florio. Don't you think that is a pretty name? I'd like to stay with him a great deal better than to go about with you to those nasty-smelling old churches with fleas hopping all over them. So Amy was left in peace with her fawn, and the others made haste to see all they could before the time to go to Florence came. Katie realized one of the moments for which she had come to Europe, when she stood for the first time on the balcony overhanging the Corso, which Mrs. Ashe had hired in company with some acquaintances made at the hotel, and looked down at the ebb and surge of the just-begun carnival. The narrow streets seemed humming with people of all sorts and conditions. Some were masked, some were not. There were ladies and gentlemen in fashionable clothes, peasants in the gayest costumes, surprised-looking tourists in tall hats and linen dusters, harlequins, clowns, devils, nuns, dominoes of every color, red, white, blue, black, while above the balconies bloomed like a rose garden with pretty faces framed in lace veils or picturesque hats. Flowers were everywhere, wreathed along the house fronts tied to the horse's ear, in ladies' hands and gentlemen's buttonholes, while vendors went up and down the street bearing great trays of violets and carnations and camellias for sale. The air was full of cries and laughter and the shrill calls of merchants advertising their wares, candy, fruit, birds, lanterns, and confetti, the latter being merely lumps of lime, large or small, with a pea or a bean embedded in each lump to give it weight. Boxes full of this unpleasant confection were suspended in front of each balcony, with tin scoops to use in ladling it out and flinging it about. Everybody wore carried a wire mask as protection against this white incessant shower, and before long the air became full of fine dust which hung above the corso like a mist, and filled the eyes and nose and clothes of all present with irritating particles. Pasquino's car was passing underneath, just as Katie and Mrs. Ashe arrived, a gorgeous affair hung with silken draperies and bearing as a symbol an enormous egg, in which the carnival was supposed to be in the act of incubation. A huge wagon followed in its wake, on which a house some sixteen feet square, whose sole occupant was a gentleman attended by five servants, who kept him supplied with confetti, which he showered liberally on the heads of the crowd. Then came a car in the shape of a steamboat, with a smoke pipe and sails over which flew the Union Jack, and which was manned with a party wearing the dress of British tars. The next wagon bore a company of jolly maskers, equipped with many-colored bladders, which they banged and rattled as they went along. Following this was a troop of beautiful circus horses, cream-colored with scarlet trappings or sorrel with blue, ridden by ladies in pale green velvet laced with silver, or blue velvet and gold. Another car bore a bird cage, which was an exact imitation of St. Peter's, within which perched a lonely parrot. This device evidently had political significance, for it was alternately hissed and applauded as it went along. The whole scene was like a brilliant, rapidly shifting dream, and Katie, as she stood with lips apart and eyes wide open with wonderment and pleasure, forgot whether she was in the body or not, forgot everything except what was passing before her gaze. She was roused by a stinging shower of lime dust. An Englishman in the next balcony had taken courteous advantage of her preoccupation and had flung a scoopful of confetti in her undefended face. It was generally Anglo-Saxons of the less refined class, English or Americans, who do these things at carnival time. The national love of rough joke comes to the surface encouraged by the license of the moment, and all the grace and prettiness of the festival vanish. 
Katie laughed and dusted herself off as well as she could and took refuge behind her mask, while a nimble American boy of the party changed places with her and thenceforth made that particular Englishman his special target, plying such a lovely, lively, and adroit shovel as to make Katie's assailant rue the hour when he evoked this national reprisal. His powdered head and rather clumsy efforts to retaliate excited shouts of laughter from the adjoining balconies. The young American, fresh from tennis and college athletics, darted about and dodged with an agility impossible to his heavily built foe, and each effective shot and parry on his side was greeted with little cries of applause and the clapping of hands on the part of those who were watching the contest. Exactly opposite them, was a balcony hung with white silk in which sat a lady who seemed to be of some distinction, for every now and then an officer in brilliant uniform or some official covered with orders and stars would be shown in by her servants, bow before her with the utmost deference, and after a little conversation retire, kissing her gloved hand as he went. The lady was a beautiful person with lustrous black eyes and dark hair over which a lace mantilla was fastened with diamond stars. She wore pale blue with white flowers, and altogether, as Katie afterwards wrote to Clover, reminded her exactly of one of those beautiful princesses whom they used to play about in their childhood, and quarrel over because every one of them wanted to be the princess and nobody else. "'I wonder who she is,' said Mrs. Ashe in a low tone. "'She might be almost anybody from her looks. She keeps glancing across to us, Katie. Do you know, I think she's taken a fancy to you.' Perhaps the lady had, for just then she turned her head and said a word to one of her footmen, who immediately placed something in her hand. It was a little shining bonbonier, and rising, she threw it straight at Katie. Alas, it struck the edge of the balcony and fell into the street below, where it was picked up by a ragged little peasant girl in a red jacket, who raised a pair of astonished eyes to the heavens, as if sure that gift must have fallen straight from thence. Katie bent forward to watch its fate and went through a little pantomime of regret and despair for the benefit of the opposite lady, who only laughed and, taking another from her servant, flung with better aim, so that it fell exactly at Katie's feet. This was a gilded box in the shape of a mandolin, which sugar plums tucked cunningly away inside. Katie kissed both of her hands in acknowledgment for the pretty toy and tossed back a bunch of roses, which she happened to be wearing in her dress. After that, it seemed the chief amusement of the fair unknown to throw bonbons at Katie. Some went straight and some did not, but before the afternoon ended, Katie had quite a lapful of confections and trifles, roses, sugared almonds, a satin casket, a silvered box in the shape of a horseshoe, a tiny cage with orange blossoms for birds on the purchase, a minute gondola with the marron glacé by way of a passenger, and prettiest of all, a little ivory harp strung with enameled violets instead of wires. For all these favors she had nothing better to offer in return than a few long-tailed bonbons with gay streamers of ribbon. These the lady opposite caught very cleverly, rarely missing one, and kissing her hand in thanks each time. "'Isn't she exquisite?' demanded Katie, her eyes shining with excitement. "'Did you ever see anyone so lovely in your life?' "'Polly, dear, I never did. There, now, she's buying those birds to set them free, I do believe.' It was indeed so. A vendor of larks had, by the aid of a long staff, thrust a cage full of wretched little prisoners up into the balcony, and Katie's lady, as Mrs. Ashe called her, was paying for the whole. As they watched, she opened the cage door, and with the sweetest look on her face encouraged the birds to fly away. 
The poor little creatures cowered and hesitated, not knowing at first what use to make of their new liberty. But at last one, the boldest of the company, hopped to the door, and with a glad, exultant chirp flew straight upward. Then the others, taking courage from his example, followed, and all were lost to view in the twinkling of an eye. "'Oh, you angel!' cried Katie, leaning over the edge of the balcony and kissing both hands impulsively. "'I never saw anyone so sweet as you are in my life. "'Polly, dear, I think carnivals are the most perfectly bewitching things in the world. "'How glad I am that this lasts a week and that we can come every day. "'Won't Amy be delighted with these bonbons? "'I do hope my lady will be here tomorrow.' "'How little she dreamed that she was never to enter that balcony again.' How little can any of us see what lies before us till it comes so near that we cannot help seeing it or shut our eyes and turn away. The next morning, almost as soon as it was light, Mrs. Ashe tapped at Katie's door. She was in her dressing gown, and her eyes looked large and frightened. Amy is ill, she cried. She has been hot and feverish all night, and she says that her head aches dreadfully. What shall I do, Katie? We ought to have a doctor at once, and I don't know the name of even any doctor here. Katie sat up in bed and for one bewildered moment did not speak. Her brain felt in a whirl of confusion, but presently it cleared and she saw what to do. I will write a note to Mrs. Sands, she said. Mrs. Sands was the wife of the American minister and one of the few acquaintances they had made since they came to Rome. You remember how nice she was the other day and how we liked her, and she has lived here so long that of course she must know all about doctors. Don't you think that's the best thing to do? The very best, said Mrs. Ashe, looking relieved. I wonder I did not think of it myself, but I'm so confused I can't think. Write the note at once, please, dear Katie. I will ring your bell for you, and then I must hurry back to Amy. Katie made haste with the note. The answer came promptly in half an hour, and by ten o'clock the physician recommended appeared. Dr. Hillary was a dark little Italian to all appearance but his mother had been a Scotchwoman, and he spoke English very well, a great comfort to poor Mrs. Ashe, who knew not a word of Italian and not a great deal of French. He felt for Amy's pulse for a long time and tested her temperature, but he gave no positive opinion, only left a prescription, and said that he would call back later in the day and should then be able to judge more clearly what the attack was likely to prove. Katie augured ill from this reserve. There was no talk of going to the carnival that afternoon. No one had any heart for it. Instead, Katie spent the time in trying to recollect all she had ever heard about the care of sick people, what was to be done first and what next, and in searching the shops for a feather pillow, which luxury Amy was imperiously demanding. The pillows of Roman hotels are, as a general thing, stuffed with wool and very hard. "'I won't have this horrid pillow any longer,' poor Amy was screaming. "'It's got bricks in it. It hurts the back of my neck. Take it away, Mama, and give me a nice soft American pillow.' I won't have this a minute longer. Don't you hear me, Mama? Take it away. So while Mrs. Ashe pacified Amy to the best of her ability, Katie hurried out in quest of the desired pillow. It proved almost an unattainable luxury. But at last, after a long search, she secured an air cushion, a down cushion about twelve inches square, and one old feather pillow which had come from some auction, and apparently lain for years in the corner of the shop. When this was encased in a fresh cover of canton flannel, it did very well, and stilled Amy's complaints a little. But all night she grew worse, and when Dr. Hillary came next day, he was forced to utter plainly the dreaded words, Roman fever. Amy was in for an attack, a light one, he hoped it might be, but they had better know the truth and make ready for it. 
Mrs. Ashe was utterly overwhelmed by this verdict, and for the first bewildered moment did not know which way to turn. Katie happily kept a steadier head. She had the advantage of a little preparation of thought, and had decided beforehand what it would be necessary to do in case. Oh, that fateful in case! The doctor and she consulted together, and the result was that Katie sought out the padrona of the establishment, and without hinting at the nature of Amy's attack, secured some rooms just vacated, which were at the end of a corridor and a little removed from the rooms of other people. There was a large room with corner window, a smaller one opening from it, and another still smaller close by, which would serve as a storeroom or might do for the use of a nurse. These rooms, without much consultation with Mrs. Ashe, who seemed stunned and sat with her eyes fixed on Amy, just answering, certainly, dear, anything you say, when applied to. Katie had arranged, according to her own ideas of comfort and hygienic necessity, as learned from Mrs. Nightingale's excellent little book on nursing. In the larger room she had the carpet curtains and nearly all the furniture taken away, the floor scrubbed with hot soap suds and the bell pulled out from the wall to allow a free circulation of air all around it. The smaller one she made as comfortable as possible for the use of Mrs. Ashe, choosing the softest sofa and the best mattresses that were obtainable, for she knew that her friend's strength was likely to be severely tried if Amy's illness proved serious. When all was ready, Amy, well wrapped in her coverings, was carried down to the entry and laid in the fresh bed with soft pillows about her, and Katie, as she went to and fro conveying clothes and books and filling drawers, felt that they were perhaps making arrangements for a long, hard trial of faith and spirits. By the next day the necessity of a nurse became apparent, and in the afternoon Katie started out in a little hired carriage in search of one. She had a list of names and went first to the English nurses, but finding them all engaged she ordered the coachman to drive to a convent where there was hope that a nursing sister might be procured. Their route lay across the Corso. So utterly had the carnival with all its gay follies vanished from her mind that she was for a moment astonished at finding herself entangled in a motley crowd, so dense that the coachman was obliged to rein in his horses and stand still for a time. There were the same masks and dominoes, the same picturesque peasant costumes which had struck her as so gay and pretty only three days before. The same jests and merry laughter filled the air, but somehow it all seemed out of tune. The sense of cold, lonely fear that had taken possession of her killed all capacity for merriment. The apprehension and solicitude of which her heart was full made the gay chattering and squeaking of the crowd sound harsh and unfeeling. The bright colors affronted her dejection. She did not want to see them. She lay back in the carriage trying to be patient under the detention and half shut her eyes. A shower of lime dust aroused her. It came from a party of burly figures in white cotton dominoes, whose carriage had been stayed by the crowd close to her own. She signified by gestures that she had no confetti and no protection, that she was not playing. In fact, but her appeal made no difference. The maskers kept on shoveling lime all over her hair and person, and the carriage, and never tired of the sport till on an opportune break in the procession enabled their vehicle to move on. Katie was shaking their largesse from her dress and parasol as well as she could, when an odd gibbering sound close to her ear, and the laughter of the crowd attracted her attention to the back of the carriage. A masker attired as a scarlet devil had climbed into the hood and was now perched close behind her. She shook her head at him, but he only shook his in return and chattered and grimaced and bent over till his fiery mask 
almost grazed her shoulder. There was no hope but in good humor, as she speedily realized and recollecting that in her shopping bag one or two of the carnival bonbons still remained, she took these out and offered them in the hopes of propitiating him. The fiend bit one to ensure that it was made of sugar and not lime, while the crowd laughed more than ever. Then, seeming satisfied, he made Katie a little speech in rapid Italian, of which she did not comprehend a word, kissed her hand, jumped down from the carriage, and disappeared in the crowd to her great relief. Presently, after the driver spied an opening, of which he took advantage, they were across the Corso now, the roar and rush of the carnival dying into silence as they drove rapidly on, and Katie, as she finished wiping away the last of the lime dust, wiped some tears from her cheeks as well. How hateful it all was, she said to herself. Then she remembered a sentence read somewhere. How heavily roll the wheels of other people's joys when your heart is sorrowful. And she realized it was true. The convent was propitious and promised to send a sister next morning, with the proviso that every second day she was to come back and sleep and rest. Katie was too thankful for any aid to make objections, and drove home with visions of saintly nuns with pure, pale faces full of peace and resignation, such as she had heard of in books floating before her eyes. Sister Ambrosia, when she appeared the next day, did not exactly realize those imaginations. She was a plump little person with rosy cheeks, a pair of demure black eyes, and a very obstinate mouth and chin. It soon appeared that natural inclination, combined with the rules of her convent, made her theory of the nurse's duties a very limited one. If Miss Ashe wished her to go down to the office with an order, she was told, We sisters care for the sick. We are not allowed to converse with the porters and the hotel people. If Katie suggested on the way home she should leave a prescription at the chemist, it was, We sisters are for nursing only. We do not visit shops. And when she was asked if she could make beef tea, she replied calmly but decisively, We sisters are not cooks. In fact, all that Sister Ambrosia seemed able or willing to do beyond the bathing of Amy's face and brushing her hair, which she accomplished handily, was to sit by the bedside telling her rosary or plying a little ebony shuttle in the manufacture of a long strip of tatting. Even this amount of usefulness was interfered with by the fact that Amy, who by this time was in a semi-delirious condition, had taken an aversion to her at the first glance and was not willing to be left with her for a single moment. "'I won't stay alone with sister embroidery,' she would cry, if her mother and Katie went into the next room for a moment's rest or a private consultation. I hate sister embroidery. Come back, Mama. Come back this moment. She's making faces at me and chattering just like an old parrot. And I don't understand a word she says. Take sister embroidery away, Mama. I tell you, don't you hear me? Come back, I say. The little voice would be raised to a shrill scream, and Mrs. Ash and Katie, hurrying back, would find Amy sitting up on her pillow, with wet, scarlet-flushed cheeks and eyes bright with fever, ready to throw herself out of bed, while calm as Mabel, whose curly head lay on the pillow beside her mistress, Sister Ambrosia, unaware of the intricacies of the English language, was placidly telling her beads and muttering prayers to herself. Some of these prayers, I do not doubt, related to Amy's recovery, if not to her conversion, and were well meant, but they were rather irritating under the circumstances. End of chapter 9